The anchor of the soul. Subheading or the question to uh, kind of make us think about the lesson says this. Do you trust Jesus as an anchor in this dangerous life? Or do you just drift dangerously? As I went to uh, uh, the passage at hand, Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 19, it's one of those verses that just when you get to it, you know, if, uh, if you ever think about, well, what was, what's something Eric would preach on, or, or probably any preacher would preach on, this one screams at you, doesn't it? This is like a verse that you just got to preach on. It says, this hope... We have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. It's a good verse, isn't it? It's a really neat verse. We have a song that goes with that verse, don't we? We have an anchor that keeps the soul both steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move. Founded, founded sure, oh no, how does it go? I'd have to sing it and then I'd get it right. Sure and deep in the Savior's love. What is it? Firm and deep in the Savior's love. So wonderful, wonderful thought, wonderful scripture. And the thing that I struggled with as I, as I was working through this and as I was talking with it, with my, um, my partner in preparation, it says this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. And it's like this hope, we just think of hope, it's Jesus, right? Jesus is the one that we put our hope in. And then I, and me with my, uh, I, I don't know, just uh, maybe I had too many English classes in, in, uh, in L, uh, high school with Mrs. German yelling at me to try and figure, figure out what the sentence, figure out the structure, this describes this and whatever. But when I look at the basic, stent, ex, basic uh, sentence structure, it's talking about the hope, the hope we have, and that hope, sure and steadfast and all that. It enters within the veil, right? So that hope enters within the veil, and then it says where Jesus has entered. So it's like the hope is different from Jesus because the hope, it's a picture of the hope enters the veil, and when that hope gets there, it's Jesus is already there, where Jesus has entered. Hopefully that makes sense to you. And so I'm like, well, how do I preach this? I'm, you know, I want to preach that Jesus is our hope, that Jesus is the anchor of our soul, sure and steadfast, and the one that enters the veil. But it's the hope. But they're the same thing. But, you know, and so I just wrestled. I was like, what is this? And I struggled with it. And so I just uh, thought for a second. And, you know, this letter is written to the Hebrews, and I just wanted to put it in its context and try and get into thinking of the people that this was written to. What would they have been thinking? These people who are 
Jews or Israelites. They are part of the, the people of God. The, you know, they are descendants of Abraham physically, literally. They have descended from Abraham. They are the children of God, right? And this book was written to them, but these are the people that, that they have accepted Christ. They're not the Jews that have rejected Christ. They're the ones who accept. Um, and we know that because chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So it's an acknowledgment. They have confessed Christ. He's not trying to get them to consider Jesus so that you would take the plunge of faith and be immersed into him. They've already done that. They've already made the good confession. They're already partakers, participants in Christ. So I put my mind up, what's the mindset of those Jews, those Hebrews that are being written to? And I ask this, for the, for the Hebrews, what was the most important place? Who's got an, anybody where was, what was the most important place for the Jews? Jerusalem, because why? What's in Jerusalem? Temple. The temple is the most important place, and not because just because the, you know the temple is the the a neat building, but it's because within that temple, in the place where the high priest could only go into once a year, in that inner sanctuary was located. Above, seated above the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat was the very presence of God where he sat. That was the most important place. And even before they came to Jerusalem and built the temple, the most important place was wherever that tent was set up and wherever that Ark was at inside the tabernacle, the tent. The most important place for the, the Jews then became, it's the temple where the presence of God was located. That's the most important place. That's the place where they worship. That's the place when they prayed, they turned toward that place. And in the nation at any, important, at any given time, who would have been the most important person in the nation? This is, uh, this is a little bit trickier question, I think. They maybe had different people that they look to, but as you think of positions, what would have been the most important one? You might say, who was the king? The king was the leader, but there was somebody that was a leader before the kings came along, right? That happened later on. They asked for a king after they, long after they entered the promised land. So just in general in their history, who was always the most important person? The high priest. The high priest. The temple was the most important place, and the high priest, the one who actually could go in to that inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, once a year, just once a year. He did it a couple times, in and out of that day, the Day of Atonement. But these were the most important people, the high priest, and the priest under him that could serve and make those sacrifices for him. Worship of God was their identity. The worship of God, then by the time we get to the time of Jesus, the worship of God according to the law of Moses, that was it. The law of Moses instructed them how to be holy so they could worship the Holy One in their temple. And the high priest was the one who helped them do it. 
So who, what was the most important place and who was the most important person? The answers are the temple and the high priest. Those two items and the information surrounding those two things, according to the law of Moses, that really sums up the identity of who the Jews were. What was important to the Hebrews? What was important to the people that this writer was writing to? Well, according to their national history, their culture, it was that temple having a high priest who could go into that temple. Now go to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. Let's read this again. It says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Now I'll just pause here. The veil was that separation between the holy place where the, high, where the, the priest could go into, but the veil separated the most holy place where the, the, high, great, the one high priest, not the great high priest, excuse me, the high priest could go into only once a year. There was a veil there, so this is a reference to the temple. This hope was we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Here's a mention or a reference to the temple. And then verse 20 says where Jesus is entered. That's what the high priest would do. He would enter within that veil once a year. Where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So here is the temple and a priest, high priest. So my question then, does this verse actually mention the temple and the high priest? I just said that, right? I just kind of said it matter-of-factly. Well, the answer is no. Not the earthly ones. Okay, so the Hebrews that this book is written to The temple, the physical temple, we know it's the spiritual presence of God that was there that was important to them, but it was the physical place that they were, that was so, so important. It was in Jerusalem. It had a location. It was on the mount. It was right, right where it was supposed to be. And there was just one, there was a high priest who could go in there. But this passage in verse 19, it's not talking about the physical place or the physical high priest, whoever the high priest was at the time this was written, that's not who it's talking about, is it? And so I ask this question. What is this pointing to? What is this hope that they are supposed to be thinking of? that's set as an anchor of the soul. A hope that is based, if I can glance back through um, uh, verses 11 and 12 just before this, it seems like the hope is associated with promises. What promises have been made to these people, and what is it according to that promise, knowing that the promise is going to be fulfilled, what is it that they're hoping for? The promise is there, It's going to be filled. What's the full assurance of their hope? And it's this. Uh, So 
the statement on the outline says, they have been given the promise, and by the way, and, and hope, the promise and hope, and hope is confident expectation. When you read hope in scripture, don't think, well, I hope, you know, this wishy-washy, maybe it'll happen. Scripture doesn't come at hope like that. This is a confident expectation, and you can realize that when you read verse 11, we'll get there a little bit later, but there's this full assurance. And and if you stick with what the promise, then you're going to receive this hope. But the, the promise and hope are of something better. Something better. But being sluggish of hearing... These people, the Hebrews, they are drifting back from what is better and going back to the old earthly temple, the earthly priests. So that doesn't seem too hard to understand, right? A people that their whole identity, their whole national life has been We have a temple built on the holy place, and God resides in that building in the innermost part of it. And we have a high priest who goes in there and represents us. And through that high priest, we can be forgiven of our sins. And through the sacrifices and everything else that's associated with that priest and that temple, all the laws, the sacrifices, and us being holy, if we just follow the law of Moses, we can be holy and be right with God. And God will continue to dwell with us in that place. And if God's with us, then we're going to be blessed. That's the essence of how the Hebrews thought. It's fairly simple, right? They associated the blessings from God as coming to that promised land where the blessings would flow. And the reason those blessings flowed in that land, because God lived there. And the Hebrew writer is coming along and saying, folks, we have a promise of something better. And you're still wrapped up in that old identity that you had. You're holding on to the earthly things when you've got something much better. Jesus, the high priest, who has entered in to the very holy place of God. He's sitting at the right hand of God. He is there, the very son of God. He's been the priest for you, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And you have a hope that takes you in there because it goes into that veil And you can enter in too because Jesus is referred to as the forerunner. And that invites us in. The writer is saying, you know, he's going in there and he's staying in there. He's not going in and out. He's not going in just for once. He is there full time forever. That's the essence of this. They have been given the promise and hope. Of something better, but they're being sluggish of hearing. A reference back to Hebrews 5.11. They're drifting away from what is better. The drifting away, that's from chapter, reference chapter 2. And they're going back to the old earthly temple, the old earthly priest. They're leaving Jesus behind. And when they leave Jesus behind, they're leaving the very opportunity to go into the presence of of God to enter within that veil 
with Christ, the forerunner. And so in, in consideration to help you with this concept and to help me with this, I, I went back and I read through, because I still, you know, what is this hope? This hope of something better is kind of how I phrase it and think about this now. This, this hope of something better than what I knew in the past, or for them what they knew in the past and how they lived, which was great and wonderful. They had the very law, the very words of God, but then there was something better that comes along. How wonderful. How does this book relate to that? And so just for a moment here, let's, let's back up to chapter 1. And let's just begin there. And let's ask ourselves what promises and what hope are found in Hebrews leading up to this passage that we're at at the very end of chapter 6. What hope is presented? When is the word hope used? Am I, is, is Eric being right with how he's rattling on about how they're, they're missing the something better? And they're going back to the old ways. So what is it? What was that? that? (laughs) I don't know. All right, so here we go. Chapter 1. Verse number 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, reference to the old ways, right? The old way it used to be. In many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. That's pretty impressive. We can, we can, that's pretty hopeful, isn't it? To know that God has spoken to us through his Son. That's better than the prophets coming. The Son comes, represented God to us, the very the exact representation of his nature. Man, that's a, that's a really neat thing. Better than anything they had under the law of Moses. Better. Better. Um, the end of verse number, well, verse 3, it says, And he, was the radi- he is the radiance of his glory and the act- exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification for sins, now that's a pretty hopeful thing. It sounds like a promise too, right? Isn't there a promise wrapped up in there? Jesus did make purification of sins. They had already been taught this. They knew about this. When Jesus had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. How wonderful is that? He's still alive. He's still living. He's at the right hand of God. That's a great promise a great understanding that he's the the one who has represented us taking care of our sins is still alive he's at the right hand of the throne of god look at the end of verse 12 just the phrase that is there and your years will not come to an end your years will not come to an end that's a pretty hopeful thing of being able to continue living um, verse 13, but to which of the angels has he said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's a promise, isn't it? God's going to make a, a, a footstool at the feet of 
the one he's speaking to are the feet of Jesus. God, you know, so it's Jesus sitting there at the right hand of the throne of God, right hand of the majesty on high, and he is putting down the enemies. Hebrews, they love that idea, don't they? They want to see the enemies put down. Just had a little bit needed to adjust their thinking about who the enemy was. It wasn't their neighbor. All right, on into chapter 2. Um, verses 1 through 3 kind of paint a picture of this whole thing I've been talking about, of missing out on the better things. Verse, chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, that's a reference to the old law, the law of Moses, it was given through angels. And every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. That's not very hopeful, is it, when transgressions and sins are paid for severely. But verse 3 says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So the thought there is, hey, yeah, you give up on Jesus, you're, you're really going to be punished. He's your He's the one who is your hope. And it was referred to with, with the salvation that we have in Christ. It is so great a salvation. That is what is offered to these Hebrews. That's very hopeful. Very wonderful. Um, chapter 2. Verse number 9. But we do see him who was made a little lower for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's hope, isn't it? Very hopeful. We don't like the sound of it. We don't. There's a part of the Lord's Supper that we don't like. The very son of God had to die because of my stupidity and rebellion and sinfulness. I hate that. But there's hope wrapped up there because he tasted death, death for me. He tasted death for everyone. That's hope. That's the joy that we have to remember in the blood. Verse 10 goes on, for it was fitting for him for whom all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. What Jesus did, this is the promise, he brings us to glory. And brings us into a relationship with God where we're called sons, bringing many sons to glory. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Verse 11, still in chapter 2, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, promise, hope, are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, promise and hope. So many, I went through and I just underlined stuff in my Bible, just asking myself, what are, what are the promises, what are the hope? What hope is given in the book of Hebrews before I get to chapter 6? So at the end of verse 14, it says, He might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That's a promise and hope. 
and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Promise filled with hope. Freeing us from sin and death because the devil is conquered. Verse 16, for assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Promise and hope. Verse 17 mentions at the very end, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Promise and hope. Verse 18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Promise and hope. Chapter 3, verse 6, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. Well, that, that just that phrase right there is promise and hope. We are his house. If we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. And here, you know, this, this is it again at the beginning of chapter 2. It's like, he was warning, you guys are going to, if you don't hold on to this, you're going to drift away. You're starting to drift away. And he says right here, he says, hey, you hold on to Christ. If you hold fast your confidence and boast of your hope firm until the end, you're going to be all right. But it's an if. He's telling these folks, you got the better thing. It's at hand. It's Jesus. It's everything, every blessing that comes in Christ. It's at hand for you. And, and it just... You're the sons of God through faith in Christ. But man, if you, if you try and go back to the old ways, you're letting go of the new. You're letting go of what is better. If, if, if the temple is so important to you and you want to go back there and that law of Moses is so important to you and you just want to stick to it and you trust those sacrifices more than the one that has been made, the very son of God, if that wasn't good enough and you think you've got to go back to the old way, oh, you're casting the better aside. To skip through, and there are more. You can go through and kind of mark the passages that reference promises and hope. And they're there over and over. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest... Any one of you may seem to come short of it. Sabbath, man, you talk about an important day. They had an important day every week, day of the week, the Sabbath day, when they would rest, when they would focus on God and give that day devoted to Him. The Sabbath, the rest, it's important. It was part of their, very much a part of their identity. And he's saying, you need to fear less that while a promise remains of entering his rest, you can enter that rest, that promise is there, you have that hope, but you might come short of it if you don't hold fast. There's promises filled with hope over and over again. The very end of Chapter 4, last word, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That only comes through Jesus. Don't give up on that. 
chapter 6, in verse number 6, it mentions a priest forever. And it's talking about the Son. Jesus is a priest forever. You want to go back to having just one high priest who was an earthly man who had his own sin to deal with? And expect him to go into the temple, into that holy place? And that's why I don't think at this point in time when Hebrews is written, the temple was still standing. But after God gives this warning, it's just a few more years probably. And then the temple became no more. And for people who still want to go and build that temple today, Christians... I just encourage you to read the book of Hebrews. You want to go back to having a physical place? One location? Or do you want to grab hold of the promise that we have already through our great high priest who is the priest forever, who is at the, he's in the holy of holies now. You want to bring him out of the heavenly holy of holies down here to dwell in a temple? doesn't make sense to me. I don't think it would have made sense to the author of Hebrews. We need to, as chapter 6 says, verse number 1, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Press on to maturity. And in that thought, in the idea of pressing on to maturity... There's a promise that, hey, you can grow and mature in Christ. You can become more like Christ. That's a beautiful promise. And there's hope, too. It's saying you can get there. You can become what Christ wants you to be, even here in this life, but even more so in the life to come. And what we will be, we do not know. But we know that when we see him, we shall be like him. We'll be changed into his very image, for we shall see him as he is. Um, some from First John chapter uh, 3 and verse 2. But isn't that our, our goal in this life? Isn't that what Christ wants from us, is to follow him and be like him? And this is saying, press on to maturity. You can follow him, and you can be like him. But you can't do it by going back to the old way, as good as it was. For the Hebrews, they saw that temple, they wanted to go there and worship, and they thought that place, that was the place where God was, and God's saying, no, there's something better. Something better. Don't let go of the something better. Chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize, realize, make it a reality, bring it to pass, realize it, to know it and let it happen. Let God do this for you. So as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, He already said up in verse number 9, But beloved, we are concerned of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation. So I'm speaking to you harshly about drifting away from the truth, drifting away from Christ. i got better thoughts for you. And then down in verse 12 he says, So that you will not be sluggish. Don't be slow to listen. 
Don't be, be going back to the old ways and doing the old things and living the old life. Doing anything besides having your identity in Jesus Christ. So that you will not be sluggish, verse 12, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This life, it's, it's for us to focus completely and solely on Jesus. The Jews were a wonderful example of saying, well, they weren't always such wonderful examples. But I tend to think of them as being ones who, they realized their whole identity and purpose was wrapped up in that temple where God was, being represented to God by that priest. That was all that was important, according to what they should have been thinking and doing. And they, were, they would get off of that and things would go bad, wouldn't they? But when they would focus on that temple and being holy because the presence of God was among them, everything was right. They were good at sticking with that identity as that, that they are the people of God and we need to follow their example and have faith and patience to inherit the promise that, that, hey, we can become more like Christ in our lives. We can do better because he is at work in us. It's not because we're so great, but because he has made a promise that he will make us into the very image. This work, very image of Christ, this work comes from God. The Spirit, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We're being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, or from glory to glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He is the one who is at work. Let Him work, and He'll do great things in you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and us. That's a promise filled with hope. i got to end, don't I? And that brings us all the way then. Verse 17, phrase in here, at the very end, I want you to focus on. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promises, to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. Okay, so God's always working the same, and he makes an oath that he's going to do something. It's going to happen. He never changes. Trust it. Those two things work together. He's always working on the same thing, and he's, he's got that oath saying he'll, he'll do this. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge, we who have taken refuge, the world's terrible. It's filled with death and hate, and decay, and rottenness, and sin, and everything. But we who have taken refuge in Christ would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. I am encouraging you. I step back from the microphone, and I think the, the author of Hebrews here, is, he's been building up to this the whole point. And he says, take hold of what is better. You got this strong encouragement. I'm telling you, you're going to drift away if you don't hold on. Hold on to Jesus. Keep holding on to what is better. Don't go back to the old way. Take hold of the promise. Take hold of the hope set before us. And then in verse number 19, this hope. For the something better, for Christ, for blessings, for 
staying away from the curses, foregoing to become more and more like Christ, to having the opportunity to be a son of God, to be able to have the opportunity to enter into the veil. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. There's your temple coming into the presence of God, not going to Jerusalem, but entering into the veil, that hope that brings you in here. You can do it. That's what God wants to do with you. Where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You've got that hope of entering the heavenly temple. Jesus is there and he's inviting us in. That idea of he's the forerunner, that means he's the first to go in, right? Doesn't that mean that there is a promise there that others will follow? That's a beautiful thing. Shouldn't our identity be wrapped up in that? As we go throughout the week, shouldn't we have our identity as as followers of Christ wrapped up with this thought that, that, hey, I'm entering into the very presence of God. I'm his child. I I am represented there by Jesus who goes, and he, later in the book, he invites, it's all about going to that place and being in the presence of God. That's the hope we have. The Hebrews wanted to pass up this hope and return to the earthly temple and the, and the earthly priest. What would you say to them? What does the author of Hebrews say to them? Bad choice. It was good, but now there's something better. Don't give up on something better because what was once good now doesn't give you what the something better does. My question to you is, what earthly things pull you, make you want to drift? What things pull you from pressing on to maturity in Jesus Christ? And I'd encourage you to think about the hope of who you can be and the hope of what Christ wants you to be and the hope of where someday you will be forever. Let that hope be that anchor that holds you fast to Jesus. You got to give you got to start by giving your life to Jesus. You got to die to self and say I'm going to live with him forever. Make that confession. Confess Jesus as your savior and turn to him. If anybody needs to do that today, we encourage you to come and give your life to Christ, be immersed into him to live with him forever. If anybody in the congregation needs the prayers of the church, We encourage you to contact us, too, and let us know so we can pray for you. Respond, though. Today is the day of salvation. Live for Christ. Hold fast your hope. We're now going to remember Christ Jesus and the giving of this uh, Lord's Supper.